listening to the No Life Skills Podcast with your host, Ashlyn. My advice for other sex workers, don't do what I did. Giving you an inside look at the fascinating world of sex work. Yeah, a little bit awkward, but uh, informational, I guess. Connect with other professionals and allies of the industry. I was like, wow, this is easy money. Now, join the conversation while we share inspiring stories on the No Life Skills Podcast. Welcome to another episode of No Life Skills. I'm your host, Ashlyn. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. This week, I'm joined by the lovely Lula Blue. Lula is a sex worker based out of Calgary, Alberta. She does full service sex work as well as online content creation. And she also runs a sex worker support group called Thrive. For this episode, I would just like to give a trigger warning as my other episodes have been pretty lighthearted and humorous. So just for anybody um, who needs a trigger warning on this episode, Lula opens up about her struggles with addiction and what it's like to be in recovery as a sex worker. I'm so excited for this episode and Lula and I talked for nearly three hours. So she will be back on next week for the follow-up episode. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. So let's get into the interview. Well, hi, Lula. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So I just want to get to know you first a little bit. So are you originally from Calgary? Uh, originally, I'm actually from the Nanaimo, BC, so on Vancouver Island. Oh shit! Well, that it's much nicer over there. <laughs> I don't know. I I really didn't like the rain and the the clouds. So Calgary is pretty sunny, even though it gets really cold. I just stay indoors and good to go. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So, what are some things to do in Calgary if someone's visiting? Mm, I always recommend uh, floating one of the rivers. So either on the Bow River, you can get like rent um, a raft, like a proper raft and life jackets and everything and float the bow. Or if you are like me and just want to chill, float on some pool floaties, uh, you can do the Elbow River as well, which is like a lot more shallow and that's a good time. Nice. Yeah. We have lots of like restaurants and I don't know, like walking around downtown is really nice. And like the scooters in the summer. I don't know if mm-hmm. you has this too, but those like rentable scooters, that's always a good time. Yes. I'm a big fan of the scooters. <laughs> <laughs> so what is something that you're passionate about? Um, yeah, I would say like sex work. <laughs> I talk about sex work a lot. Um, my poor friends and family that have to deal with me talking about sex work and sex work advocacy and fighting stigma and just all of it. Uh, I'm very passionate about that. I love that. And what do you like to do for fun? I love roller skating. I just started roller skating like last summer during the pandemic and I'm obsessed with it and I do it almost every day. Um, I just got into, well, not just got into, I've been park, I've been roller skating at the skate park now for like eight months and that's been, yeah, my obsession. So I, I love that. I, cool. Yeah. I love that too. Have you considered roller derby? Oh God, I'm not a team player, honestly. Like, no, I mean, roller like, derby, you just hit people. <laughs> yeah, but you gotta you gotta work together as a team. There's really, uh, I'm not a competitive person. Like <laughs> I'm a very like individualized, like if I'm gonna do sports, it's like my own. Yeah. I'm very I'm yeah. Fair enough. That's <laughs> I fair. Like my alone time, I'm, like doing things by myself for sure. I feel that for sure. <laughs> um, have you been to post secondary? And if so, what did you study? <laughs> uh no. Really? I, I barely graduated high school. 
Um, <laughs> oh my God. I totally thought you'd been to post-secondary. No, I dropped out of school in like grade 11. And then, cause I wanted to work full time. I was like, Oh, why am I in school? I want to work and make money and, and pay my bills. So I, I dropped out of school and did that. And then, uh, I ended up going back and doing like my, like a, equivalent C, like still when I was that age, like I, mm-hmm. I was still like the same age that I would have been in high school when I finished. So that was fine. But yeah, I just, I just felt like it was a waste of time, honestly, which is fucked up looking back <laughs> at it. I'm like, oh my God, I was just such an angsty teenager. Like you should have just stayed in school. What is wrong with you? I think everybody says that when they leave high yeah. school early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so funny though. Cause you, I think you're so well-spoken and like intelligent online. So I totally, I mean, not that <laughs> you have to go to post-secondary to be that, but. I got good grades. Like I was a really good student. I was on the honor roll and everything. It was honestly just that I thought it was a waste of time. And I think I was like, had a huge ego when I was that age and just wanted to be an adult as fast as possible. Ah, uh, yeah, I understand that well too. <laughs> and so please tell me about your son. And by your son, I mean, dog Logan. I'm a huge fan of his. Oh my God. How old is he? What what breed? <laughs> He's four years old. Oh. Um, he is a cockadoo, or sorry, a, a cockapoo or a cockadoodle. Oh. Um, so that's a cocker spaniel mixed with a poodle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really funny because everybody always asks me if he's like a teacup poodle because he's so <laughs> small. Um, he's about five pounds. Oh. And when I got him, I, I actually got him from a breeder. And when I went to go pick him up, the breeder said that uh, he would probably be around like 20, 25 pounds because both of his parents are like that. And yeah, I don't know what happened. I think I left him in the dryer too long because he <laughs> is so tiny. <laughs> He's so cute. I'm obsessed. Well, I'll have to... wool in the dryer. I just <laughs> don't put your puppies in the dryer. <laughs> your wool puppies. Oh, that's so cool. I love. So tell me, how did you pick the name Lula Blue? Did you always have this name or did you switch it up? Yeah, I, since getting into sex work, I've I've been called Lula um, the whole time. I don't really have any plans to change it, but who knows? Lula is actually my nickname from childhood. Oh, love <laughs> um, that. My little sister called me Lula when I when I was younger. And that name just kind of stuck. Like my family still calls me that. <laughs> and people from back home and stuff. So I, I wanted to pick a name that I would respond to if someone yelled it at me in public. Is so is that weird or <laughs> I guess it's just normal now? I guess it's normal. It's just my name, like honestly. It's not okay. my name but it's my name. Okay, fair enough. And so how long have you been escorting and how did you get started? I've been escorting for four and a half years now. I got started actually looking at adult jobs on Craigslist. Originally, I was looking for porn jobs. Wow. (laughs) And couldn't find any. Um, I found an agency that was hiring. And after I did like a lot of research around the legality around sex work and realized that escorting was actually legal in Canada or legalized. I was like, oh, I can do that. Like, I would love to do that. Um, so yeah, I just kind of went that way. Cool. And so what drew you to sex work in the first place? Like what drew you to wanting to do porn in the first place or to even look for agencies? I, I've always been like a really, not necessarily like hypersexual in the way that I'm like horny all the time, but just in the way of like, I'm fascinated by human sexuality. I'm fascinated about the psychology behind sexuality and like different people and meeting people and interacting with people and like intimacy really fascinates me. And so when I was like growing up, I don't know, I've just always been interested in that sort of thing. I just remember uh, even as a child, like teaching my friends like things about sexual health in like the fourth (laughs) grade, like when we weren't being taught that yet. And I knew about it already. And was just fascinated by it. And I always thought of sex work as being an option as well. Like I think 
some of the media that I consumed. I, I actually watched a lot of like Western movies growing up. <laughs> and in a lot of those Western movies, there's these badass madams that own these brothels and, you know, have all these like, just like amazingly driven and like power hungry women working at these brothels that they're business women, you know, and I just kind of always saw it in that way. Um, wow. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people growing up don't have that perception of sex work. So that's very interesting. No, no. I, I would definitely blame like John Wayne movies for that for me. <laughs> no, I think it's awesome. And so you told me through Twitter that when you worked for an agency, you strictly did out calls. So what was that like just going to people's places and stuff? Tell, tell me about what it was like working for the agency. So yeah, in Calgary, from my understanding, and I don't really understand how we have spas here. I think you had mentioned it in another episode that like the spas in Calgary are grandfathered in, but yes. basically the bylaws here, you can't have an in-call agency. It's considered a brothel. So, mm-hmm. um, and those are illegal. So yeah, the agencies that I was applying for were alcohol only. And that's kind of what they explained to me too, when I was applying is that that's the only way for them to legally do sex work. So that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go and get a license with the city to work with an agency and you know, went down to city hall and did the whole background check and everything. And when I went down to city hall, they even said like the agency that I started up with, um, they had said like, Oh, like this is a very reputable agency. They do everything by the book. This is great. So I was like, wow, perfect. Mm. I picked the right one. Look at me. So smart. <laughs> <laughs> knowing everything I was 21 at the time like just thought I fucking you know because I did all this research on oh, Reddit yes. and Tumblr and <laughs> thought that I fucking knew how to do everything so anyways got started with this agency they did all my bookings for me they did all my advertising for me and yeah I, I would see like all kinds of people um I really liked like the, the out call part was all that I like when I talked to the, about the out call part with people that just do in call they're really scared by it and they're like mm-hmm. oh god yeah but it was all that I knew so like yeah you know that was comfortable to me and then I loved seeing like inside people's homes that was like the (laughs) most interesting thing ever and like someone would call in and I would just try to like predict what their house would be like what they would look like and (laughs) all that kind of stuff and then when I would get to their house I you know I would just like I know I loved I loved it I loved that part oh my god that's so funny part of that is that I you know you're going to people's homes and some people don't take care of their homes or their mm-hmm. home very well. So you're kind of exposed to a lot of like really interesting things. <laughs> so what what kind of interesting things? Because I don't do that many out calls, but the ones, the few that I've done, mm, it's usually not a good time for me. <laughs> and I'm traumatized after from the state of these people's houses. Yeah. If you ever watched Orders on like... Oh, yes. I don't know if that was on TLC or like... Oh, it, TLC. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that show. So like, think of that. Um, <laughs> How can these men have people over like that? Exactly. They don't oh. have regular people over. They just hire people to come over. <laughs> oh, it's so gross. It's so terrible. Yeah. So pretty bad. There was a guy that I went to his house and I like didn't even sit down the entire time. And like, he uh, told me that he lost the money. So I was just <laughs> kind of like waiting around the entire night, waiting for him to find his money. Uh, he was really <laughs> drunk. And my boss like the the agency owner i was on the phone with her and she's like just stay there till he finds the money if he doesn't find it you can go home i'm like okay what cool uh it still sucked i had to like stand there and like wait for him to not find the money and like, how long were you there an hour i was there for the hell yeah it was a huge it was ridiculous i think that it was like a like he was trying to scam me but i refused to like give in to it yeah <laughs> standing there in his living room and i'm, I'm really glad i didn't sit down because i probably 
Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Put it home something. So. Oh God. So do you remember your very first client working for the agency? Oh God. Yeah. My very first client was not a good experience. And like looking back on it now, he should have been blacklisted from like the first day I saw him, but I actually saw him as a regular for like quite a number of months after that. He was awful. It just like picture like the worst type of boundary pusher trying mm-hmm. to ask my real name, trying to, you know, have bareback sex with me. Like trying nice. to oil is lube, which I like called out on. And I was like, no, that breaks condoms. You shouldn't do that. And th- I think that's what his intention was. So yeah, my, my first client experience was terrible, but also I was told by the agency that he was a really great regular and that uh-huh. he was nice and like all this stuff. So I, that was kind of my standard where I was like, oh, if that's, you know, Aww. good clients, then yeah, you know, up with this and deal with it. And and he would book me for like 45 minutes, like a couple times a week. <laughs> for oh, weeks. Yeah. So that was brutal. Do you think that he targeted you and was trying to push your boundaries because he knew that you were new? Like, is he one of those guys that would like see every single new girl that comes through? Because it's like that where I've worked at the studios. There's always the guys that target the new girls and push their boundaries. Yeah, 100%. I actually ended up having like a really um, fucked up experience with him a few months later. And when I called the agency to let them know what had happened, he basically he was tampering with condoms. Hmm. Um, when I called the agency to let them know what happened, she told me that she blacklisted him, but then she continued to send new girls to him. Ugh. And then I found out later by like one of my duo partners that she got sent to see him once and you know, told the agency to blacklist him because he was awful. Huh. And he still continued, they still continued to send girls to see him. And he would like call the agency and like request new girls. So imagine that. Oh, that just disgusts me to no end that men are able to get away with that shit and the agency doesn't do anything about it. Right. Oh, disgusting. So anyways, <laughs> that's horrible. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, God. So when you first started doing sex work, You did a lot of research, you said. So did you have any preconceived notions of what the job would be? And did those preconceived notions differ from what it was actually like? Yeah, I think like my preconceived notions were that I would be providing a service to people who couldn't have their needs met or certain needs met, whether that be companionship or sexual touch, intimacy, like, you know, just somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of like had that assumption. And when I started with the agency that I was with, a lot of the time I was realizing that I was kind of used as like a coping mechanism for some people, mm-hmm. which again was very normalized. And I thought that that was kind of, you know, you know, I was wrong and that this was part of the job. But then every once in a while, I would get a genuinely really nice client. And I really felt like I was providing something for them that they were missing in their lives. And you know, I left, I would leave those types of sessions feeling really full and like, I don't know, like I just like contributed to this person's life in a really positive way. And those calls kind of kept me going and made me realize like, okay, this is what I want. Like, this is mm-hmm. what the type of sex work that I want to continue doing. And that was what I was hoping for when I got started. And so you knew that it existed, you had a taste, but yeah, a, a lot of shitty clients at the agency. Hey, so the good ones were few and far between at the beginning is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Gotcha. So when you started, did you have any help from other sex workers, like other girls that worked at the agency? Not until I started booking duos. Um, so I started getting like requested for duos. Um, by clients who just like want a couple of girls. They didn't actually care who came over. They just wanted a couple of girls to come over. Um, So whoever was available would go. And 
yeah, once I started getting requested for those, um, I started meeting some other providers. Um, you know, there were some providers from my agency that didn't want to meet other girls. So they would, you know, request not to do duos. They, you know, had probably been jaded by other people in the industry before and just mm-hmm. had trust issues, which fair enough, that does happen. But then I would meet uh, other providers that like immediately I became like best friends with, uh, built really nice relationships with. And there was this one girl in particular, her name at the time was Chanel. She's long retired now, but um, she basically like taught me everything that I know. And she was just like so helpful and validating for a lot of the experiences that I was dealing with on my own that, you know, the owner of the agency would just tell me was normal. And she's like, mm-hmm. no, like that is, that is ridiculous. Like that's manipulation. That's assault. That's, you know, whatever. And and mm-hmm. yeah, she really helped me like get through a lot of those difficult situations and and taught me how to like stick up for myself and to enforce my boundaries with both clients and with agency. Yeah. Like I can't imagine having a boss and working for someone who's basically gaslighting you about everything because they just want to put some money in their pocket. Right. Yeah. And if you're not interacting with other girls that are working there in the beginning, yeah. How do you know what's normal? You're like, you're just believing anything your boss says. Right. Ugh. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> uh, would you recommend working at an agency to other sex workers who are just starting out? Um, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that. Um, I've worked for a couple of agencies. I worked for two alcohol agencies. The second one I worked for was a lot better than the first, um, but it still had its you know toxic uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. that would happen would go on there. Um, and then I've also worked for an in-call agency actually in Victoria, BC. Mm-hmm. And I really like the idea of an in-call agency. I feel like it's so much safer because you have actual people there with you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can interact with the other providers and sort of feed off of each other's energy, but also give each other's tips and tricks and, you know, share experiences with each other. Because like when you're new and getting into the industry, like, you don't know anything. Like you can only do so much research and, you know, try to be as prepared as possible, but nothing really prepares you for what it's actually like. and. Mm-hmm. having other workers there with you during your workday and being able to like work through a lot of the stuff that goes on is just amazing. Like that makes the world of difference. So I mm-hmm. would recommend that. That being said, I do know that there are some in-call agencies that also are negative work environments and can be toxic. <laughs> yeah. 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 I definitely hear that. Yeah. I totally agree. Like I started at the studios too. So I had like people around me from day one telling me what to do and helping me out. So I definitely recommend doing that. Yeah. Agency, that scares me. (laughs) You're very brave to go all in like that. Oh, man. (laughs) I thought that that was the legal, like, safest way to go about it. Yeah. Definitely wasn't. I mean, I don't know. I think there's some agencies because my one of my other friends used to work for one in Edmonton and it was kind of a different thing. Like you would go to a place like their office and sit there and wait for calls basically. So you were around other women sometimes. Right. So that's like different than what you're describing. Basically, like, did they just call you and tell you to go to a place? Yeah. So, which is ridiculous because they were taking like quite a significant chunk of my money and then basically just like telling me where to go and who to see. And I felt like hot and ready pizza. Like I had to be ready all day long on Mm. call. Some days I wouldn't get anything. So I'm just like ready to go for no reason. And then other days, like, you know, I'm so busy back to back bookings all over the city, not showering in between, mind you. Nice. So there's that. Um, sometimes clients would let me shower at their house, like right when I got there. And I would ask, but some people would be like, oh, no, let's just get right into it. So oh, God. 
Yeah, your funeral, uh, bud. <laughs> uh, so did they provide a driver for you or did you have to get yourself to your appointments? So again, the first agency I worked for, they, you had to provide your, you had to pay your own driver. What? You had to use their pre-approved driver. So she would interview people to be a driver and then she would give you those people's contact information. You weren't allowed to use a cab. You weren't allowed to use your boyfriend or girlfriend to drive you. Um, you could drive yourself if you had a vehicle, but I didn't have a vehicle. And I also wanted the security of like having somebody waiting for me. So yeah, she had these pre-approved drivers, which two of them sexually harassed me for the first like two or three months that I was working there. And then finally I got a female driver um, and just used her for the rest of my outcall career, basically. Wow. I with her, but yeah. Yeah, wow. that was and you had to pay the driver like fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes oh, yeah. more. Like I think the they would charge like a little bit more if the call was longer, like mm-hmm. you're going out of town, stuff like that. Of course. <laughs> oh wow. That's crazy. It doesn't seem very organized or very fair. It was organized, but it was, it was not, yeah. It was okay. organized unfairness. <laughs> mm, gotcha. So what was the most important thing that you learned starting out as a sex worker? I would and this is gonna sound like uh, common knowledge or like obvious, but I, to me, it wasn't. And I think that it, like having somebody throw this into my head would have been really helpful at the beginning. Say no, mm-hmm. <laughs> say no and refuse service. Like that is okay. You are allowed to do that. Don't feel bad about it. Um, clients will try to guilt trip you and make you feel like shit for saying no, but like say it, yeah. um, and leave. Like if you feel uncomfortable, if somebody does something to you that you are not okay with like get the fuck out of there take their money and leave like, don't feel guilty about it don't give the money back <laughs> unless they're oh. like you physically obviously like if you're safe just take mm-hmm. it and go and yeah don't feel bad about trusting your gut and always trust your gut mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's great advice absolutely okay so uh, these were your words not mine uh, <laughs> you mentioned that you were a raging alcoholic your first two years as a sex worker and now you've been in recovery for quite some time so would you say, were you an alcoholic before you started sex work or was sex work a catalyst for your alcoholism? Yeah, I, I definitely think that I had unhealthy drinking habits um, right from being a teenager. Um, but I was definitely like, quote unquote, high functioning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I would drink on the weekends, I would binge drink on vacation, stuff like that. But then I would always make it to work on time and get through my shifts and stuff like that. I definitely used alcohol to cope with trauma. I, I suffer with um, anxiety and depression. So I was using alcohol to cope with those things. So anytime something went terribly, terribly wrong in my life, it was like, Oh, go grab a case of beer or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like when I started sex work and I was, you know, at the time not out to my family. So I was very isolated. I couldn't talk about what was going on in sex work. And when I would talk about it with friends of mine, you know, you don't want to tell them all the worst things that are happening because they're just going to tell you to, to quit or try mm-hmm. to stop. Um, and I really wanted to continue on with sex work. I did really like it. So yeah, I, I didn't have any healthy outlet, outlets for the trauma of sex work. And I, I used alcohol even more to cope with everything that was going on, for sure. So when you were seeing clients those first two years, did you have to be drunk to see clients like every time? Or would you sometimes go sober to calls? So I actually, like when I first started, I you know kind of made a, a boundary with myself that I would not drink with clients ever. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be safe. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was in control of everything that was going on. And if they were drinking, then I definitely didn't want to be drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was really scared about like somebody trying to drug me or like me. And I also knowing that I had unhealthy drinking habits. Like when I have one drink, I can't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I knew that about myself and knowing that like going into a booking, like if somebody gives me a drink, like I'm not going to stop drinking. So yeah, yeah, for the first like three or four months of escorting, I did not drink with any clients at all. Um, And then after that, there were a few regulars of mine that I'd become really comfortable with. And then I would drink with those clients. Mm-hmm. But yeah, originally I didn't drink with anybody. Okay. So then towards like the end of the two years, were you drinking with more and more clients or still just like a few trusted regulars? Yeah, I was, I was getting too comfortable. Mm, okay. <laughs> As yeah. years went on, I do remember there was this one client in particular that um, I got along with really well. And, and I think he was an alcoholic as well. And we would drink quite heavily together. And then there was this one night where we got, this would happen a lot where I would get drunk and then I would clock off for the rest of the night. Like, let's say I was scheduled to work for the rest of the night. I would just be like, no, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I spent a few hours with him. Like I'm good. Yeah. Which I should be allowed to do regardless of if I'm drunk or not. But yeah. <laughs> actually, if I'm drunk, I shouldn't be continuing to work. Mm-hmm. And I, um, after my booking, I was planning on calling the agency and telling them that I was clocked off for the night. But when I got in the car with my driver, she had told me that I already had a booking lined up and that I had to go. And I don't really remember the car ride to the next client's house, but she told me the next day that I was crying and being really dramatic and telling her I wanted to go home and demanding to go home. And she was annoyed with me that I had gotten drunk with this other client and that I was clocking off early because she wanted to make more money. Mm-hmm. And basically she just kind of forced me into this call. And mm. I don't I don't remember the call. I don't remember that client. I feel bad for him because I only imagine what I was like. Um, I'm I'm sure that I tried to hold it together and tried to pretend I was fine, but Mm -hmm. um, who knows? Uh, That's really shitty of your driver to do that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when you were drinking with your clients, were you doing that like to cope with being in a booking or were you doing that drinking with them because you thought that they wanted you to get fucked up? They definitely wanted me to get fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but also like for longer calls, yeah, um, it was easier to just drink because you didn't oh, yeah. really do as much if you were drinking with them or doing drugs with them and hanging out and talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it was just like talking and talking. And talking. So, oh yeah. Like, there was a lot of guys that would do a lot of flow and just want to talk. Oh, oh God. God. You're stone cold sober trying to get through that, trying to stay awake all night. Like, oh no. I didn't really like doing Coke, but like drinking would keep me up all night and I could talk and, you know, just hang out with them and get through it. So I, oh, yeah, I would do that sometimes. Yeah. Those guys, man, I, yeah, <laughs> I've been there too. So nope. do you, did you find, cause you're going to people's houses all the time doing L calls. Did you find that a lot of clients were pressuring you to drink and party with them just cause they were in their own home? Yeah. Cause like, you know, a lot of them aren't going to drink and drive. And yeah. Go to the um, mm-hmm. so yeah. Like the clients that want to drink with a provider are typically going to book an alcohol provider to come see them you mm-hmm. know so yeah that was super super common lots of hotels um, mm-hmm. lots of people traveling and just wanting to party and have some companionship right because they don't know anybody in the city and mm-hmm. there, so it's easy to just like hire a companion to come and hang out with them or, or, or you know that's when i would get booked with the most duos too as they would hire all companions to come and hang out so yeah so were there other escorts that worked at the agency also drinking and partying a lot like was that kind of thing normal there for all the girls to do yeah, it's so funny. Like when I got hired, we were told no drugs, oh. try not like have a glass of wine with dinner, but try not to, you know, get drunk with clients. It's not safe. They like, always tell you that. <laughs> yeah, there was very strict rules against that. Um, but pretty much everybody that I met, I definitely didn't meet any sober girls. Mm-hmm. Um, 
through agencies, but like pretty much everybody that I met either did coke or drank heavily. And there were a couple of girls where I would pick them up because um, we would share drivers sometimes. So I would get a driver and then we would go pick them up and they would get in and they're already drinking and they thought like a first mm. kind of thing. And and just being like, do you want some? <laughs> get through this. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so funny. Because when I started at the studios, too, they always say, oh, yeah, no drinking, no drugs. Mm-hmm. Does anybody listen? No. <laughs> and of course, the girls that make the money, they never get fired. So they can do whatever they want. Right. Yeah, it's so true. Ugh. And the agency knows. Like, the agency knows that you're doing drugs or drinking with your clients because the clients are telling them that. Like, they're, like, <laughs> telling them all about the super rad night that they had uh, and, like, and those girls again because they know how to party. And that was... Oh, crazy. God. Love that. That's wonderful. <laughs> so why did you decide to get sober? Yeah, like I mentioned, <laughs> um, there were some instances that were happening where I wasn't as quote unquote, high functioning anymore. A lot of my drinking was bleeding into my work life. And I think before sex work, you know, having that structure of working a nine to five, you can't drink on the job or the jobs that I was working at, you couldn't, you get caught and get fired. I saw people get fired for stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a lot more structured. And when I was self-employed and didn't really have a set schedule and could just kind of fuck around and do whatever I wanted, and then also could get drunk on the job. Yeah, those boundaries just slowly just like faded into nothing. And yeah, it just became this thing of like drinking all the time. And I, what summer was it? I think it was like 2017 or 18 when I got my first withdrawal symptoms. I went to a music festival and when I got back, I mean, withdrawal symptoms are basically a hangover, but like these were like more severe withdrawal symptoms, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got back from that, I was just like, Oh, like this is withdrawal. This is crazy. And kind of realizing like, okay, like this is definitely going down into a place that's out of my control. And I, I don't know if I can actually handle this on my own. And yeah, so that was when I decided that I needed to like seek help. Yeah. So you said that you went to rehab. So did you just go straight into rehab after you decided to quit drinking or did you try and quit by yourself before try other things? I mean, I tried to quit by myself quite a few times. Um, I would, but I wouldn't want to quit forever. I'd just kind of be like, okay, I'm just going to quit for a month. And <laughs> yeah. happens, or my tolerance would get too high and I'd be more, a more of an <laughs> punk. So I'm like, well, if I quit for a few months, <laughs> my tolerance will go back down. Oh, totally. I totally relate to that. <laughs> and yeah, like I could, I could do that for a while, but then I would always go back to it. And then I would just kind of be like, well, I'm young. Like I'm in my twenties. I'm having fun. Like nothing's going wrong. I'm not ruining my life. Like this is fine. Um, and then like I mentioned, like when I started having those withdrawal symptoms for the first time, I decided to quit drinking for the month of September and I made it two weeks in and basically like went full on into a bender, um, came out of the other end of the bender, like in my ex-girlfriend's bed, I had broken up with her the month before and like I was back <laughs> together with her and like, yeah, it's <laughs> not good at all. And like basically like waking up from a hangover being like, oh my God, I'm going to have to like break up with her again. This is Ooh, awful. Yeah. Realizing that it was actually starting to affect, um, the people around me. I also went to a, um, a meet and greet, uh, calf party and, Ooh blacked out that night as well which was so dangerous and my Uh, yeah yeah my roommate I had told her I was going for a call like I told her I was working and which I wasn't I was going to this party Mm -hmm. and I I just didn't know what how she would react I don't know I don't know why I hid it from her but um I went to this party and then I ended up blacking out and 
stopped checking my, or my phone died or it was in the other room or something. And, and she actually ended up calling the cops um, oh. because she thought I was working and she was terrified that something horrible had happened to me because I hadn't come home. And mm-hmm. up until that point, I was very consistent about like telling people where I was and always, you know, letting people know where I was going and what I was doing and, and coming home on time and all of that. So when she couldn't find me and couldn't get a hold of me, she called the agency, she called my driver and nobody knew where I was. And my agency was like, she wasn't working last night. So yeah, she assumed the worst and ended up calling the cops. So that was, that was pretty bad. And I started realizing like, no, like I'm actually really affecting the people around me. It's not just a me problem anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, that was kind of the straw, the last straw. And I decided to get help. I started going to meetings. I really hated the 12 step meetings because <laughs> they were very like rooted in religion. And I have a lot of religious trauma from my childhood. So I, I did not like the idea of going to a 12 step meeting. I started going to a, uh, a meeting called smart recovery, which is like a science-based CBT. Um, it's a cognitive behavioral therapy type meeting. Mm-hmm. And that meeting was really helpful. And I, I went there really consistently. And then eventually I got a psychologist, um, that I started meeting with once a week. And, um, yeah, just like from being in the meetings and meeting with my psychologist, I started realizing like, okay, yeah, treatment, inpatient treatment seems like a good option. I think that that would be really good reset for me, help me just like really, really dive into my trauma that I've been clearly avoiding dealing with and and being in a safe environment that, you know, cause when you're doing a lot of trauma work, what ends up happening for a lot of addicts is like, you know, you're re-traumatizing yourself when you're mm-hmm. doing that work. And what did you used to use to cope? Mm-hmm. Alcohol and drugs. Yep. <laughs> so it's it's dangerous, right? So yeah, he didn't. My psychologist didn't even really want to get into too much uh, trauma work with me until I went to treatment. So, and how long did you go to treatment for? I was in treatment for six weeks. Okay. Uh, patient. Yeah. So you don't have your phone in there. I didn't have my phone with me in there. Wow. <laughs> you get, scheduled phone times. Got to bring a little phone book to be able to call all your friends and your <laughs> phone time. You don't do your chores. You don't get your phone time. Um, <laughs> wow. So did you like rehab? <laughs> I love rehab. Oh my God. I love that. Okay. I have mixed reviews about rehab, but I love <laughs> it overall. I used to like sing a little song because I went to a women's only rehab and like I used to sing a little song where I was just like, oh, but I also again like had a I feel like I had a realistic view of what treatment would be like uh, I have a family member that works at a treatment center um so you know hearing his stories mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I knew what to expect so you did in. some research before you went <laughs> and yeah, always doing research before I go okay um, and then also going to meetings like I was going to meetings pretty consistently for uh, quite a quite a few months while I was on the waiting list to go to treatment. And mm-hmm. so, you know, hearing people in the meetings um, talking about their treatment experiences and where they went and what happened and how, how it was and everything. Like, I really wanted to go by that point. I was like, oh my God, this sounds great. I would love this. Yeah. So when you were in rehab, were you open about being a sex worker? Like, was it like group work as well as like one-on-one stuff, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We had like uh, small groups. Mm-hmm that we break off into and have group therapy. And then, yeah, you did have some one-on-one sessions with a psychologist. I was very open about <laughs> that summer. I'm trying to think, like, when did I come out to my parents? No, I think I didn't that time. I got my psychologist. I told my psychologist that I was a sex worker. He was very, 
very sex work positive. Um, oh, that's great. And I don't think he was before he met me, but once we got to know each other, he was very like pro sex work, which was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And then when I went to treatment, I was very open about being a sex worker. It was a little disheartening at the beginning because they had like rules that they would give you at the beginning, like a little workbook. You would go through all their like little rules and everything. And one of the rules was actually not to glorify sex work. What? Uh, and that sex work was very triggering to a lot of the people in the treatment center. So please don't talk about it. Don't glorify it. Don't like joke about it. Blah, blah, oh. blah. And what I realized was that they were actually conflating the word sex work with sex trafficking, which is really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that sucked because like I immediately saw that and was crushed because I was like, I have a lot of trauma that I need to work through and talk about. And yeah. if I can't talk about it in here, where am I going to talk about it? So I was really upset about it. And when I had my one-on-one session with my psychologist, I, you know, shared my concerns and told her what, you know, what I was worried about. And, and she was like, oh no, like just don't talk about it in the common areas and try not to brag about it kind of thing. Like just uh-huh. don't, you know, don't be like glorifying it. If, that makes sense and and, and uh, not in the common areas because you never know who who's overhearing and maybe they're not hearing the full story or they don't know you or whatever so they're just hearing little tidbits here and there so maybe just try to keep it um to the small groups so I was allowed to talk about it in a small group which was so helpful yeah I was able to work through a lot of stuff with the ladies in my small group that's awesome and so the other people in your small group were accepting of you and yeah yeah. Okay. Everyone was pretty accepting me. I think like I am a pretty confident person. So when I talk about things that I'm happy about or passionate about, like people listen to me and they're, they believe me. Like they're like, okay, yeah, like this is helpful to her. Like she likes this and this is good. Whereas like I could see somebody going to treatment and not having that same level of confidence, not having that same level of self-esteem. And maybe they struggle with talking in groups. Maybe they struggle with even talking to a fucking therapist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there were girls in there that were sex workers that didn't tell anyone that they were sex. They told me they would come up to me on smoke break and tell me all about it, Uh, but they were too scared to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it with anybody and they thought they would be judged, but there were so many of them. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And, um, but my small group was really nice. I don't think anybody in my small group was a sex worker. Maybe one of them had done it, um, for a couple of years in her youth, but, um, was like long out of the industry and, it was a very different industry when she was in it. So yeah, there was that. But yeah, for the most part, everybody was pretty supportive. My counselors were really, really supportive and and good about it for sure. But then later, after I left, I, well, once I graduated, one of my counselors asked me to come back and do sort of like you go back and you kind of tell your recovery story to the people that are currently in treatment. And so this was many, many months after I'd already graduated and worked through all of this stuff and you know, it was like long into the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I went back and they didn't really give me any instruction on like how I was supposed to present my story. And they just said, be as open and honest as you, as you want and tell them, you know, everything that's going on in your life and how, how your recovery is going and how work is going and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, great. <sighs> so I went in there and um, I had told my story a couple of times at meetings before. And so I was pretty confident in like how to structure it and talk to them and stuff. So I went in there and I told my story and did my thing. And, you know, again, there was quite a few people in treatment that were sex workers that were very, very like excited to hear my story and felt very validated by my story. Then a couple of weeks later, I got an email from my counselor basically telling me that, and, and she wasn't the one saying this, but she was just kind of conveying this information to me. 
that um, there were complaints about my story that I basically <sighs> try. I was coming to treatment to pimp out people, <gasps> try to get them to join a sex trafficking scheme. What? All this because I was talking about my support group. I was oh. literally like, I wasn't even inviting anybody. <laughs> I was oh. just like, you know, I ended up starting a support group because I needed one. And yeah. Oh my God. Now, and this is what's helping my recovery, and this is what's helping my sobriety, and you know, whatever, and very excited about it. And yeah, I think like a, a few of the ladies there just like took it the complete wrong way and were very like upset about it. And also, there was no staff present when I was giving this speech. <sighs> been actually trying to pimp these girls out like those <laughs> around to protect them so that's fucking ridiculous um uh, <laughs> my friends put that out to me later and i was like you're right like yeah that's their fault jesus christ i yeah i think it's just really unfortunate that in the first place the first thing you saw in the rule book was don't glorify sex work and so you're very confident but like you said many other women are not and they've you know done other kinds of sex work maybe they were street-based workers and like that like the sex work as a whole can be traumatizing to people and they they go to rehab to try and work through their shit and they don't even want to be open about something that might be a huge part of their life like and then you go in to share your story and some people are happy and then they think that you're trying to start a sex trafficking ring yeah yeah that that was great that was a highlight of that Wow. Um, and again, this was this was not any of the counselors that when I was in treatment were actually like working with me. Mm-hmm. These were counselors that and counselors and support staff, like they they have a high turnover right there. So they go through support. So it wasn't even the same support staff there that was there when I was in treatment. Yeah. Um so people that didn't even know me, that had not heard my story, had not yeah. even met me, um, were making these assumptions about me and it really mm. hurt the guys. It- I stopped going to alumni meetings oh. and I, I, I stopped keeping in touch with certain people. Like it, it was really, really brutal. And, um, it just kind of like t- tainted it. Like, like I said, I loved treatment. Like yeah. I loved being there. it was a, a really great experience for me overall. Um, but that really tainted my view on treatment in general and, and even the recovery community in general, which sucked. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, that's like, traumatizing all over again honestly like anyways wow (laughs) so how would you say rehab changed your life and how long have you been sober now okay so I've been sober for two years Mm -hmm. Um, but I would like to say that recovery doesn't have to revolve around sobriety and I think that like there isn't a one size fits all recovery for everybody. Mm-hmm. So when I say that I've been sober for two years, um, that is true. Um, but I would also like to say like, I've been in recovery for two years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? mm-hmm. I've been working on myself for two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I lapsed tomorrow and got back on the wagon and, you know, restarted again, I'm not actually restarting again. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, kind of starting from where I left off and I still have all of that. Yeah. It doesn't negate the prior two years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that like that's something that kind of gets pushed really heavily in a lot of the meetings is like the abstinence based mm-hmm. and like you know, collecting your chip and <laughs> I've been 30 days clean. I've been this long clean. Like mm-hmm. your clean time is like something that people cling to. And I just, yeah, I, I want people to realize that that's not uh, always the most important thing. Yes. I really like that you said that actually. So yeah, I will reframe this question in the future. If I'm asking someone else, not, not that I think you're correcting me or anything, but yeah, I think I, I really like that. And I, um, yeah, treatment like really gave me the tools to cope in a way that I was using alcohol before. 
and, and yeah. And like help me work, actually work through trauma that I was just like shoving down and like not dealing with. Cause like when you're, when your brain goes into survival mode and you're just like, I need to survive this and get through this, you just kind of like shove it down, or at least I did shove it down for later to deal with later. But then later never came. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have the support that I needed to deal with that. I wasn't seeking professional help for a while. So, you know, I, I didn't deal with any of that stuff. So treatment really gave me that like safe environment where I could deal with my trauma and not, you know, not have the ability to like go out to the liquor store and buy some booze and get shit based. Like I, I couldn't, I was stuck in treatment. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, I think it's awesome. Cause uh, yeah, like you said, when people are working through traumatic stuff and they're not in a safe environment and don't have that kind of support, you don't know any better in those situations. So of course, what are you going to do? You're going to go get yeah. fucked up. Like when you, there's, when you grow up a certain way like that and you haven't learned any healthy coping mechanisms, what do people expect? Right. But I'm yeah. so glad that you had such a positive experience in rehab. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked it. And like I said, like there's no one size fits all recovery for everybody. And I don't like rehab doesn't have to be a part of anyone's story if they don't want it to be. But yeah, for me, like it was a really good experience. I would recommend it for sure. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, there was a lot of like female bonding and empowerment that went on <laughs> that I like, oh, I treasure that memory. So that's yeah. awesome. So after you got out of rehab, you went independent, right? Yes. So why did you decide to do that? Yeah, I decided to go independent basically because working with the outcall agencies, even the second one that I worked with, that was a lot better. Most of their regular clients were either drug users or people that just wanted to party for the night, wanted to stay up really late. And some of it like was like sex addiction as well, I think, like using Mm -hmm. basically like my body to cope with whatever they're dealing with, which for me now is really triggering to just be around. Like, obviously some people don't mind being around that and that's fine. Um, but for me, it, it was like affecting me really. And especially when I started going to meetings and like doing the work on myself and having that like little chunk of sober time on my own. And then I would go to these calls and there'd be these clients like drinking super heavily, like doing cocaine in the bathroom. Actually, like a couple of days before I went to treatment, I had told my uh, my boss, the agent, the agency owner, um, many months before this, that I was getting sober and that I wanted her to not send me to people who had a reputation for partying. Like, obviously, she can't tell everybody, but if, yeah. like, if it was a regular that she knew partied, um, to like not send me there. Yeah. And so, you know, she had that in her mind and was telling all of the other people that worked um, the phones to like make sure that they weren't doing that. Literally like two days before I went to treatment, they hooked me up with this client who definitely had a reputation. He was a regular and he was smoking crack in his house. Nice. And he actually had another escort over from Leo List who was also smoking crack with him. Like, Love that. So that was awful. <laughs> I yeah. was just like, oh my God, like this wow. is so hard. Like I have to go to treatment in two days and they're going to drug test me. And like, oh no. So if you're, if you're around people smoking crack, will you um, maybe test positive or... No, no. I, okay. I was a little bit paranoid about that oh, for God. sure. Like, what if I like get something oh, on me? Like secondhand or... crack smoke. I don't know how that shit works. I never smoked right? crack, but you know, yeah, that's Maybe. it's just disrespectful. Like, of, for her yeah. to do that because she knew she totally had to have known. Oh yeah, he had a reputation for that. Like that was you know I had never seen him before, but when I talked mm. to other girls about it later, like they're like, oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah, just total disrespect and poor management. Just. Mm. So when you went independent, was there a learning curve now being in recovery and working for yourself? 
Oh, for sure. Yeah, I was really nervous about having to do like any longer bookings. And then also like I was I was completely I was trying to switch everything. So like, you know, working with the agencies, working nights, um, not having a set schedule, uh, being on call all the time and doing out calls like those were all things that were sort of like bringing up these situations that were just kind of like making me more and more depressed, more anxious and, and yeah. traumatizing me basically. Totally. So I, I decided like, okay, like if I'm going to do sex work, I'm going to do it in a way that isn't going to cause all these issues for me. So I'm going to work during the day. I'm going to get an in-call and do in-call only so that, you know, hopefully nobody's <laughs> driving to come see me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to work at an in-call and have like with another worker. So then like somebody is going to sort of be around or like have that sort of safety. Mm-hmm. So it'll be out of my house. And then what was the other thing? Oh, I'll work during the day. So I like switch my hours up. Um, I'm not a morning person <laughs> by any means at all. Uh, so like I usually wake up at like 9 or 10 a.m. Um, so my earliest booking was at like 11 a.m. And then I would, <laughs> my latest booking would be at like 10 p.m. at the very latest. Mm-hmm. So then at least then like I'm getting more daytime clients and getting people that, you know, are just kind of like, you know, coming to have their needs met rather than like needing me for companionship or partying. Yeah. So it was like those few good clients you had at the beginning, you were yes. getting that more often now as when you went independent. Well, actually it was all of them because the way that I was screening my calls and the way that I was picking my clients, mm-hmm. I was looking for and, and basically like cultivating the clients that I wanted. Lola Davina talks about this in her book. Yeah. Um, I'm quoting her there. You're able to be selective with who you were seeing yeah. and it was up to you and not up to the agency. Right. And, and when you picture in your head, like the type of client that like gives you that really warm and fuzzy feeling when they leave, like you just feel really good about doing those sessions with them. Yeah. Picture that client in your mind and think about how that client would text you, how that client would reach out to you, what they would say in their introduction email, how they would present themselves. And then I would just pick those people. Like those were the clients that I would actually follow through with booking. So would you say then when you went independent, you were busy enough to be able to be selective with your clientele? Because I know when a lot of uh, people are starting out, they, for lack of a better term, they got to just take what they can get, you know? So. Right. I had to start over. I I didn't actually bring any of my regulars with me Mm -hmm. when I left the agency. Because again, like they were all or the type of guys that wanted to book same day, they wanted to book, mm-hmm. you know, be here in 45 minutes, late at night kind of thing. So like, I didn't bring any of my regulars with me. I had to start completely over. But luckily, I had a reputation in the city already, like a good reputation. Okay. And I, w- I was seen everywhere. Like you could see me on yeah. the list, you could see me on escort directory, you could see me on cap, you could see me on Twitter, like, yeah. I was everywhere. So like, you could easily verify that I was a real person. I wasn't scamming people. I've been around for a couple of years. So So I think I had that privilege for sure. Mm -hmm. That said, when I first started, like it was terrifying. I barely made rent the first month that I got a treatment, but I did it. Like I I still did it. I got through it. And then like the months after that and the months after that, like I slowly started building regulars. And also the type of clients that book during the day are the type of clients that want to come and see you again. Imagine that. They care about like you as a person. Like they're like, Oh, I really liked that girl's personality. I really liked, you know, the way her body was. I really liked, um, the things that she's interested in. We connected on that. Like there's just so much more that they are looking for. And Mm -hmm. you know, when you're it for them, like 
they're not going to go anywhere else or they might, but like they'll come back eventually. Yeah. So those types of clients were more fulfilling to you, obviously. Yeah, and, and they became regulars right away. So yeah. once you start building up a couple of regulars, then very quickly it, it becomes more stable and you're able to like, you know, the anxiety starts to fade a little bit. <laughs> oh, totally. And it's important to, for you and anyone else in that situation to, yeah, try and see good clients who you think are going to treat you well, because I think at the end of the day, your mental health and your state of being is more important than, you know, the money. Right. Right. And, and, uh, the in-call that I was renting at the time, um, it was actually with another provider, um, who she was renting the whole house and then she had the basement suite for her business. And then the upper suite, um, she wanted a roommate to help pay the bills. So yeah, that was a really nice setup and it was great because we could book duos on short notice and um, after a booking would end, the client would leave and, you know, she'd text me and be like, oh, are you free? And kind of come up and decompress with her and talk with her and stuff. So that was really nice to have that, like separate from my living space for that, for that time. It was really, really nice. And especially going from like working a outcall only agency and like you don't have anyone to really decompress with or talk to after a booking, like it can be really lonely and, mm-hmm. and hard. So that was, that was great. Like that was a really great plus as well. So would you say that your experience since being in recovery doing sex work has been a heck of a lot more positive yes. working independently? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When I was working at the agency, like there were so many things that would happen and like I use humor to cope. Like I laugh about this kind of stuff, but it's like fucked up things mm-hmm. that happen and it would happen quite often. And I would just kind of like chalk it up to like, oh, well, that's just the business. Like, okay. But it's not. No, it, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. That's the, yes, it's the business, but it, it, it doesn't have to be the business, you know? It, yeah, exactly. It's one small piece of the business, but there's so many yeah. more you yes. know, pieces to yeah. it. There's so many more facets that you could be doing and, and so many other clients that you could be seeing that like that's kind of stuff doesn't have to happen. And yeah. that's to me was like so validating and, and, and amazing that like, yeah, I, I, I just wish that anybody getting into this industry could like skip what I had to go through. Like, I think like, I don't regret how I got into the industry. Cause I think that like, I wouldn't be the person that I am today without having gone through that stuff. But like, I wish that I could like help other people prevent having to deal with that and like skip that whole traumatizing part. And, you know, there's probably people that get into the industry and then leave because they think that that's, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I think the turnover rates of escorts working at agencies are incredibly high. They're incredibly high at the studios where I've worked too. Like people don't stick around because fucked up shit happens at those places. Absolutely. And it just, yeah, it doesn't have to be like that. But yeah, it's too bad. So I know many, many, many sex workers, unfortunately, that cannot do this kind of work sober. Do you have any advice to those people? I think like any industry and and like I said, I have a loved one that works um, at a rehab center as a counselor and, and, you know, he'll kind of share stories about like different people from different industries that deal with addiction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are industries where, and, you know, you'd think of these industries as very like prestigious, like very um, in societal standards, like, you know, lawyer, doctor, nurse, pilot like all of these types of industries all have addicts oh of course addicts. and the reason for that is that when you don't have support when you're working too much when you don't have ways to cope and when you're isolated that breeds addiction and mm-hmm. so for a lot of us who can't come out to our families or our friends isolated 
for those of us who are here living here from another country that immigrated here and are doing sex work isolated, Mm -hmm. you know, people from other cultures that can't talk about, you know, what they do with anybody from back home isolated, just like all of these different things. Um, and if you're working by yourself at home, uh, isolated, (laughs) you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then again, when we said like traumatizing things happening, you know, when fucked up shit happens and you don't have anybody to talk about it with, again, you're isolated. And what do you do when you're isolated? You try to cope with your surroundings, try to cope with what's going on. And if you don't have the education um, on healthy ways to do that, that work for you, kind of just makes sense that people are led to drugs and alcohol or um, other addictions too, yeah. like eating issues and, and using your phones too much, exercise, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. Totally. So. Totally. I was actually doing some research. There's a study um, and basically they looked at like instances of alcoholism and sex workers and they compiled numbers from a bunch of different places. And I thought it was interesting because I think it said like 96% of sex workers drink and 33% mm-hmm. like drink like heavily. Right. So I was just like, wow, yeah. that's a lot. I mean, to be fair, you could also look at the general population. Oh, yeah. Very similar numbers. <laughs> that's very that's true. Right. It, is, it is quite high in this industry. And I just think that like knowing that you, that it's possible to do it sober, because I actually found a bunch of people on Twitter that are trying to do it sober as well. And, and oh. people that are successfully doing it sober. And then other people who are like normal. <laughs> <laughs> What's that like? Normies. Alcohol abuse issues at all. And what? What? For, for years. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> They're just living their lives like they've imagine got kids, that they're married, like they've got a big house like they've got shit to do they're business women like <laughs> and they're killing it you know and um it's out there it exists and i think yes. just like connecting with other sex workers i think would be like my biggest recommendation for anybody who's dealing with substance abuse issues and then also realizing that like sorry my point uh when i was mentioning <laughs> my uh loved one who works oh yes me, we were kind of talking about this a few months ago about how if he had a client who was saying that, you know, being in a certain industry was causing them to drink or it was like making their recovery really difficult, he would recommend to them to leave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. recommend this to everyone in that industry, but some people, it maybe it's just not a good environment to be in and that's okay. Yeah. Like, there's no shame in that. That's totally fine to switch careers. Like, People do it all the time. That's true. It's true. It's uh, but you know, I think some people when they're in sex work, I think they may think they don't have any other options. You right. know, yeah, right, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. But no, you're totally right. Yeah, addiction comes in all forms. Everybody can be an addict. Like any, anybody from any any job, any upbringing. Yeah. So, do you think it helps or hurts your business now that you're in recovery? For me, it definitely helps. I think that it like gives me, especially because I'm so open about it. Like, I literally have it on my website that I'm. Yeah, I like, love that. <laughs> I talk about it all the time. I get clients <laughs> in recovery, which is my favorite. I love Aww. that because we have so much to talk about. You know, yeah, way, like, so many things in common that we can talk about and have a really deep, meaningful conversation. And that's really nice. Yeah, um, totally. And then also, I'm not showing up blackout drunk to calls anymore. Yep. (laughs) Or hungover. (laughs) Or hungover, putting myself in dangerous situations or, you know, whatever. Um, So I think that is beneficial for my business because I'm alive. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And you're probably a lot more reliable now. (laughs) Yes, I'm definitely more reliable. I respond to (laughs) all my inquiries and (laughs) cancel last minute. Actually, honestly, I didn't really do that when I was in uh, my drinking. No. 
I was, I was again, quote unquote, <laughs> keeping it together. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. Really good it, but ah, okay. Interesting. Interesting. But I, I, I think it's helped my business for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Do you ever see clients now who drink or party around you? Or if, if someone was doing that, would you leave or tell them to leave? Yeah, I would tell them to leave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, uh, I tell people like right away when they message me, if they're like mentioning alcohol even to me and I get the hint that they haven't actually read my restrictions or my mm-hmm. website, yeah. um, I'll straight up say like, I'm actually a recovering alcoholic. So <laughs> I do not party. I'm not party friendly. It's okay if you need like one drink to calm your nerves, but do not bring it around me. Cause I'm like a shark. If I sniff that shit, like it's over. <laughs> what if you were like to kiss somebody and they had been drinking? I'm just curious. And you could like taste the alcohol. I mean, at that point, like if I can taste the alcohol, clearly you didn't brush your teeth before coming mm, over. Yeah. Like that's gross too. Yeah. Gotcha. So <laughs> <all> gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm far enough in my recovery now that I don't mind. Like I, I did have a, a, a couple in September that booked me for a duo or not really a duo, but like a couple session yeah. um, at a hotel and, and they had a glass of wine before I showed up. And I, I trusted that that was okay. But I did tell them like, I'm in recovery, like I'm a recovering alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We all, you know, go overboard and, and mm-hmm. that's that's worked um thus far. So I feel like if anybody is also in recovery and dealing with that kind of stuff, like just being open about it, I know it's scary and it's like there's a lot of shame, I think, in society around being an addict. And it really sucks that there's that type of shame, but it doesn't need to be that way. You can be open about it and as long as you say it with confidence and you're just kind of like matter of fact about your life, like Nobody can say shit to you. And if they do, it's usually because they also have an issue. With it. Oh, yes. If someone's got a problem, they're just projecting their own bullshit all over you. That's, right. and, that happened, yeah. and I did that. Like, I was like that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Why do you think drinking and partying is so normalized in this line of work? Do you think it's normalized in this line of work? I think it depends. Because um, like I said, like, that was all I was exposed to when I first got into the industry. And that was all that I was around. So it seemed like that was normalized. But now that I'm, I've been out of it for a couple of years, I'm like, I don't even see it anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not around that at all anymore. And and most of the the providers that I hang out with even like aren't like that. So God, I got to make some friends in Calgary then. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that there's people in Edmonton too. Like it's, it's just about, I, I think also, when I was in active addiction, I would gravitate towards other addicts. Like that was my people, you know, like other people in addiction, especially like Mm -hmm. that was, that was who I got along with. That was who I connected with right away. It was easier um, to be around people like that. I I didn't have as much social anxiety around people like that. And then when I would be around someone who had their shit together, (laughs) I was intimidated, you know, like I was scared of them. Like it, it weirded. I'm like, how do you cope though? Like how do, how do, (laughs) conversation I don't know and oh. it's scared me and so when I got sober there was all these people that all of a sudden I was like oh I've I've been following these people on Twitter I've been like interacting with them at play parties or at meet and greets and like I didn't notice them and now I notice them and they're so cool see it's so weird that you say that because I've had kind of the opposite experience mm. like and I kind of like put this on the question list or whatever just my context because Uh, Yeah, it's so weird because I was not like a heavy drinker most of my time in the industry and stuff. And when I started uh, like meeting other women in the business, I I thought, oh, all these girls have their shit together. They're so successful. They're making all this money. Like they don't really show online that they drink or do anything. And uh, so I started meeting all these people in person that I thought were so successful that I looked up to. 
and like everyone's doing cocaine, everyone's drinking heavily, like everyone's just fucked up, like to oblivion. And like that fucked me up because I was like, oh my God, I thought these people were making so much money. They were so successful. Is this what guys want? Like, right. Man, it was like total opposite experience. Like, and I hear you, I totally think that there's a lot of people who aren't like that in the business too. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was just, I don't know. I guess I had this perception that everyone had it together. And then I met all these people and I was like, oof, no, I was wrong. Yeah. The thing to remember about Twitter, and it's it's hard sometimes because I feel like a lot of a lot of us on Twitter and like you're kind of like this too, very similar to me, where you're very open and yeah. on Twitter. Yes. And I have to remind myself all the time that that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> is it? <laughs> that's just how it is. <laughs> yeah. Like for us, yeah. But like the majority of people on Twitter, like they are putting on like complete personas for work. Like they're advertising to their clients. And even though they might sometimes give like a little tidbit here and there, like their personal life, like it's very carefully curated. It's not like a reflection on reality. God, I don't. Who has time for that? God, I just like <laughs> word vomit all over Twitter. I just maybe I should be more careful. But when I stopped caring what people thought about me on Twitter and stopped curating myself how I thought people wanted to see me, then I became so much more successful. Honestly, like tenfold. Right. right. And that's the thing is like you see these people that are kind of portraying themselves in this specific way in this like fantasy mm-hmm. and. It, that's what it is. That's it's a fantasy. Like that doesn't reflect how much money they have. That doesn't totally. reflect how they are with even if they have a lot of money, are they good at managing it? No, are they probably not. <laughs> they, yeah, like you don't know that, and yeah. and I don't know that, and and yeah, it's it's easy to compare ourselves to people on Twitter based on like how many followers do they have, how much interaction are they getting, like are they well known, but. Yeah, we don't actually know like the full scope of what's going on until you actually get to know somebody and. What I've found, and I, I, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll touch into this a little bit later, but mm-hmm. when I started seeing people in an environment of wanting to thrive in this industry, those were the types of people that like actually were doing work on themselves. Those were the type of people that like really, really craved connection with other sex workers and like wanted a very positive experience in the industry even if they didn't have it right then they wanted it mm-hmm. and wanting it it makes all the difference even if you don't have it yet yes um, totally and that's where I met like the coolest most down to earth like my family really like it's mm-hmm. yeah it's great that's awesome but it might also be a Calgary thing. You might need to leave Edmonton. Oh, <laughs> I'll come visit. I know. I do have some. I do have some sex worker friends here that I would consider quote unquote uh, normal. But <laughs> well, you can always come stay with me. I have an extra bedroom, and you oh, can hang out with Logan. Only if Logan will sleep with me in the bed. He might. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to force him to do that with guests sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes he'll just like get out of bed and go and wait by the door. It's really sad. Okay, well, we can try. We can try. Okay, I guess, yeah, the last question I want to ask here is how can clients or fellow sex workers best support sex workers who are openly in recovery? If a sex worker is openly in recovery, do not call them, email them, or see them while you're drunk. (laughs) Yeah. It's very triggering. Um, even if you're struggling and you can't stop, like it's just very triggering to them and it's no reflection on you or your life, but it just like, it's, it affects us a lot more, yeah. especially with, like the nature of, you know, the emotional labor that we put into our work, mm-hmm. you know, respect not to bring wine to people's houses <laughs> recovery. I had that happen to me one time. Like, I wine and 
I told him to take it with him and he didn't. And then I just stared at it for like, oh oh no. And then I opened it and dumped it down the sink and bawled my eyes out. Oh, (laughs) oh, you poor thing. Don't bring wine. Don't bring cocaine. Nothing. cocaine oh god (laughs) and and just kind of maybe ask like even just say like if you're unsure like I have people all the time asking me like oh like if alcohol is bad but like is it okay if I smoke a little weed before I go get there and like I'm okay with people smoking weed even in my apartment it's fine but some people aren't like some people have issues with pot like you don't really know like if somebody says they're in recovery you don't really know what their you know drug of choice was so yeah just cognizant of that be mindful and and respectful and, and just ask like if you don't know just ask that's fine and they don't have to tell you details but they can at least like set some boundaries with you yeah yeah awesome and how can other sex workers support sex workers who are in recovery yeah same thing don't bring alcohol <laughs> ever anybody um whenever like i have anybody come and stay with me like the, you know i have a, a couple of friends that tour to calgary and they'll come and stay with me and use my in call and stuff and i just i tell them straight up like even if i don't think that they're going to get wasted in my house or I don't assume that, but I just say it. Like, I'm just like, Hey, please don't bring booze <laughs> in my house. This is my, my sanctuary. This is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just, just don't have it around me. Like it's okay if you go out and you do and you drink and whatever, that's fine. Just like, just don't have it around me. Yeah. Um, that's like my main thing. And then again, like just be mindful that like, you might actually not know that somebody's in recovery and they are. So just be a little bit more mindful of that maybe and and do ask questions and do ask people if things are okay when you're doing them. I've been noticing like a big trend of people, even just out in public, like with my civilian friends of like when someone's about to smoke weed, like they they check with the group that it's okay. Ooh, you know? It's legal now though, that. but I do love it you know, too. Wow. Because <laughs> you never know if yeah. somebody asthma or might be bothered by the smell or something like just give people the choice you know yeah, I mean? yeah no that's awesome yeah consent so, yeah. consent is sexy my friends it is it is awesome okay that was great okay so that concludes this week's episode with lula there will be a part two next week that's already recorded so make sure you're subscribed and tune in next week if you want to hear more Next week, Lula goes into detail about coming out as a sex worker to her family, what it's like being an openly gay sex worker online and working with her partner slash girlfriend. And she also talks about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected her business over the last year. So lots of interesting stuff. If you're interested in following Lula on social media or getting in contact with her, all of her information will be linked in the podcast description. Lula also runs a sex worker support group called Thrive, which we will get into in more detail next episode. But if you're curious or want to check it out, I will have that email linked below as well as the Twitter account where you can get more information. It's for sex workers only. And I think it's a wonderful way to get community. And for myself, all of my contact information will be also linked in the podcast description. And you can follow me on OnlyFans at moreashland.com. And make sure if you like the podcast, give me five stars and write me a review. I'd really appreciate it. If you send me a screenshot of your review, I will send you a free month to my paid OnlyFans. So that's a great deal. And I hope everybody had a wonderful long Easter weekend. Praise God. Praise Jesus. Praise the hooker gods. Amen. I also have a bonus episode dropping this Saturday. And that is an interview I did with a comedian from Atlanta, Georgia. His name is Tank Smith. And I was on his podcast called The Full Service Podcast. So make sure you look him up. His podcast is awesome. He interviews a bunch of different sex workers. Super nice guy. And yeah, so Saturday that will be dropping. You can get to know me a little bit more. 
And thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Life Skills. Follow Ashlyn on social media at No Life Skill or at Adore Ashlyn. Be sure to like, comment, and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you on the next show.